At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Remember the first time that you were told to do something by your boss or your parents or somebody who has authority over you? Do you remember that first time they told you to do something and you didn't want to do it? My first real job was uh, with the uh, quick service food industry. That's what we were required to call it. It wasn't fast food. It was quick service. And I worked, I worked for the vaunted, valued Chick-fil-A enterprise and industry in high school. Uh, one time I remember, um, and this was such a formational time for me, I worked for a, a really good boss, but he was a, he was a strict guy and he, he wanted things done well and done rightly, and so it was a good environment for me to learn how to work and how to labor well. And, and I remember this one time where it was a Saturday afternoon, I had been working a full good six-hour shift, I was tired, I was ready to get off, I had plans with some of my friends to go see a movie after the shift and to kind of rest and relax the rest of the day. And about 30 minutes before my shift ended, uh, my boss at the time, it was the operator of the store, he came to me and he said, hey, Jeremy, I've got uh, an assignment for you today. I need you to clean all the vent hoods in the restaurant uh, before you clock out today. And I did not want to clean the vent hoods at the restaurant that day, mainly because it was a messy, dirty, nasty job. Also because it took, it took in my mind, way more than 30 minutes to do it. And so I protested. I said, boss, you know, my... I clock out at 3, and it's like 2.30 right now. I don't think I'm going to have the time to do that. And he says, trust me. If you do it right, if you do it well, it'll take you 30 minutes. No problem. I do it all the time. You got this. Well, I was frustrated, and I was mad, and I was just a stupid teenager and just decided I am not going to enjoy that at all. And so I kind of did the job, but not really. I mean, not really well, not to his standards and not to the health code standards, I think, even of the uh, restaurant itself. And so I kind of glazed my way through it, half-heartedly did it, uh, just, just real passively did the very, very least that I could, buttoned up the vent hoods, went into my uh, supervisor's office and said, I'm done, I'm out of here, it's three o'clock, thank you very much, I'm going to clock out now and see you later. Except my boss said, now hold on, time out, let's inspect your work. And it was then and there that I knew I'd been caught right? My boss unbuttons the vent hoods, looks at them. They're not really clean. I mean, I've just done the very, very minimum, and it was horrible. And so he buttoned it back up, and he looked at me and said, okay, you clocked out? I'm like, yep, I'm out of here. And he said, no, you're not. No, you're not. And he began to proceed to tell me how if I didn't clean those properly, the restaurant could stand in violation of the health codes. The whole restaurant could be shut down, and like we would lose a lot of money, let alone his reputation and all of that. And my boss had the right and the authority in that moment to fire me on the spot for my insubordination and for, for my laziness in doing the job. And he said to me, Jeremy, do you have a problem with authority? That's a rough question. Thankfully, he was a gracious man. And he didn't fire me on the spot, but he did say, hey, listen, you didn't do this right, and you should have, so I want you to go back and do it the right way. So I get my time card, and he's like, no, 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 you don't get to clock in on this. I'm not going to fire you, but I want you to go back and do this the right way and make it work. Do the best work. 
And I learned from that that taking shortcuts in my work and uh, taking uh, the easy way out isn't the best way. But that question that he asked me has just hung over me for so many years. Do you have a problem with authority? Frankly, it's a question I'd like to ask you this morning. Do you have a problem with authority? Are there people in your life, perhaps your employers, maybe the government, uh, maybe teachers, maybe, uh, maybe parents? Are there people in your life that you have a problem of authority with? Do you just look at it and say, no way, I'm not going to listen to them, I'm not going to submit to them, I'm not going to obey them, I'm not going to do their thing, and you have an authority problem. We're in the last chapter of this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to his young disciple and pastor, uh, Timothy. And I don't know about you, but this letter has been so powerful for me as we've gone through it over the last eight weeks. And we've got just a couple more Sundays here in this letter. But I want to remind you that Paul's been writing to instruct Timothy and encourage Timothy in leading the church. As, as Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he's written this letter to say to Timothy, here's how you lead this church well. Here's the things that you should value. Here's, here's the way that you should handle those that are teaching false doctrine. This is the way that the church should operate well together. And he says in verse uh, 14 and 15 of chapter 3, he says his whole point is instructing Timothy so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He's been basically saying to Timothy, Timothy, here's the family code. As, as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers, as, as a people together who are the household, the family of God, here's how we live together. And here's how you as a leader organize and order the, the family of God so that you live effectively and for the glory of God well and that the, the good news of Jesus isn't tarnished or diminished in the world, but that it's enhanced and that it's adorned beautifully. So he says, if you bear the name of Christian, then this is what it looks like in your life in the church as we relate to one another. If you bear that name Christian or little Christ, these are the things this letter has been talking about, the things that we should live out and should practice in our behavior. So in chapter 3, he talks about the kind of behavior or the character that elders and deacons and deaconesses, the leaders of the church, should have a high standard of character for those who lead. And in chapter 4, Paul focuses on Timothy and, and talks about the behavior or the, co the conduct of the man called to lead the church as the pastor. And he, and he instructs Timothy about his, his discipline, his focus and ambitions in life, and, and about keeping close watch on his life and on his teaching so that as he leads and as he preaches, many might be saved. In chapter 5, Paul comes to talking about the church as a family and how we should behave as family towards one another. As family, we should honor one another as family, as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters loving one another and caring for one another well. And we should honor and care for those who are in need among us, particularly widows as he talks about them and their need, and then also showing honor and respect to those who lead the church, who serve as pastors over the church. And now here in chapter 6, he's still talking about how we behave, but he talks about how believers should relate to those in authority above them. And Paul's teaching here is specific to the context of Ephesus and the context of the Roman Empire when he talks about it, but it's through this lens that he speaks about how those relate to one another that we see our lens of authority and submission today. The lens that he was speaking through, the culture, was of the culture of slavery in the Roman Empire. 
His specific instruction here is to bondservants or slaves. That's the same word used there in verse 6. If you see in the Bible in the New Testament the word slave used and the word bondservant, it's probably the same word. He speaks to those who serve as slaves in the Roman Empire, in these households. And here he's instructing them about how they're to operate under the authority of their masters. Now, let me just talk about what slavery looked like in the Roman Empire for just a moment here. First of all, it was very, very common. Uh, It was estimated that there were some 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire as a whole. It was a significant portion of the population in the Roman uh, Empire and environment. In Ephesus itself, it was estimated that there was at least 30% of the city population were slaves in the households of, of many. Roman Empire slavery involved the uh, ownership of a human being by another human being. And so in that way, it was not morally uh, sound. It was not good. It was not right. But the difference is that slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on skin color or appearance. It wasn't like the mid-Atlantic slave trade of the 18th and 19th centuries uh, here in the United States and in Britain. Ancient slaves distinctly had the opportunities and means to earn their freedom They had opportunities to be educated, and they had opportunities to increase their social and economic status in society. Paul tells those who are slaves in 1 Corinthians, he says, if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, do it. That's a good and right thing. From the outward appearance, though, it was impossible to differentiate in the community environments a slave from a free person. And yet, slavery still was not a preferred form of human existence. One scholar writes, slaves were the property of their masters and were required to do whatever their masters told them to do. If they failed to do their master's bidding, the master could use coercive violence to compel them to the task at hand. In Roman slavery, a master had the power of life and death over his slave. The master could take his slave's life if he so desired because his slave was his property to do with as he pleased. So you can imagine the temptation of those who were, who were bond servants or slaves in these households, and that would be to fight and to, to, to go against the authority of your master. Now, this becomes a big issue in the church itself because the community of the church and the social structures within the church are all very different. When, when you reorient the people of God not to being masters and slaves, but to being family together, now the relationships take on a different perspective. Paul says that in Christ, all things are reordered. And so to the churches in Galatia, he says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. So ethnic division separated, gone. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul has told Timothy of the practical nature of the church being a family together as fathers and mothers. He's got this tension here. If we're fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters together, where does this idea of bondservants, masters, slaves and masters, where does this all fit in and go? How do slaves who are under the yoke of slavery do family well when they're brothers and sisters with their masters? What should that look like for them in the church? And so that's where Paul writes to speak to them about how they should live in their households, in those relationships. And for us, this is the lens through which we can see a perspective of how we deal with and relate to authority today. 
The question is on the nature of what Paul says, or how I quote Paul, living under the yoke. Do you live under the yoke of someone else in your life? Absolutely. Every one of us lives under the yoke of someone else here today. This is something I try and teach my kids often. It's like, hey, don't think that when you grow up and get out of the house, like you have no authority in your life anymore, that you can just go and live and do whatever you want, however you want. You will always be under someone else's authority. Even if you become the CEO of the biggest, most rich company in the entire world, and you become the most powerful and rich person in all the world, you're still under God's authority. You're always going to be under someone's authority. So as I think about this idea of being under authority and living under the yoke, I think there's a few spheres of relationships today, modernly, that we can, that we can at least apply this teaching to in our own lives. So you think about being employees in a company. How many of you have a boss? Yeah, okay. Most of us here. A few of you don't, and that's great. I want to get to know you better. <laughs> many of you are, are all citizens under the government leadership, both locally and federally, of our country and of our state and of our communities. So we have the authority over us in the government. Uh, we're members of the church. There's spiritual authority and leadership that stands over us. And each of these areas are my, are, might be what you call God-given authority but it can extend to other areas of authority. So just as you think, who am I under the yoke of? I want you to be thinking about those places where someone leads you. Someone has authority over your life. It could be the home, the classroom, a variety of other places. And here's the principle that I want us to see this morning and to begin to, to work out in application in our lives. Christians under authority serve a higher authority. It's a new perspective for us to think about. The Christians, those who claim the name of Christ, who serve under authority, who are under the yoke of someone somewhere, actually serve a higher authority. We have an ultimate authority. So regardless of where you're at in your life, you're under the authority of someone in some way or another. And the basic perspective that we must take is that we are under and ultimately serve a higher authority, namely God our Father. So as we consider this, I want to ask a question. Do you have an authority problem, first of all? But I want to ask the question of how do we live in response to the God-given authority over us? How do we live in response to the God-given authority over us? Now, Paul takes it in two directions. It's really one, uh, one emphasis, one desire, but he, he applies it to two different arenas here, two different groups of people. And so I want to just take one verse at a time here and help us see how do we apply these, these things and this teaching to the specific spheres of authority that we sit under. Who are you a yoke under in our life? So let's first of all talk about, in verse 1 he does, how do we deal with and how do we live under the authority of non-Christians? Whether it's your boss, whether it's the government officials, whether it's a teacher, parent, whoever it might be, how do you live under the authority toward a non-Christian? And the scripture says that we are to show honor to uphold the gospel. Towards non-Christians, we show honor for the sake of the gospel, upholding the gospel, living out the gospel. This is immediately practical because I think many of you probably work for non-Christians. There are unbelievers in your life that you are serving, that you are working under, you're under the yoke of, and you've got to think, how do I relate to them? How do, how do I walk in integrity and in, in, and in righteousness towards them as, as my boss, as my leader? You, you probably know that they have different agendas, different values than you, different approaches. They, they think of success differently. Even the goal of your job, they may interpret very differently than how you would interpret it or see it. You might think they're just the devil. 
So, so how do you go about treating them? Okay, look at verse 1 here. Paul says, Let all who are under the yoke, under a yoke of as bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let me just pull this apart for just a little bit or unpack this here. Okay, first of all, he says, let all. Okay, who does that mean? Everybody, right? Let everyone, okay? If you're under the yoke of authority in some place, in some sphere, in some reality, this is for you. This is universal in scope. Everyone's in on this. He doesn't have uh, exemptions here for us. All of us who are under the yoke of authority in one way or another have an obligation here. This is a command for us. And, and he moves on to say, let all who are under this yoke as bondservants regard, so that's an idea of our, our perspective, our mindset. Here's how we think about and how we interact with and relate to those who stand in authority over us and above us. To, to regard them means, here's, here's the... Here's the renewed mind that I'm going to put on and seeking to, to serve and to work under them. How do we regard them? As devils, as people we should hate, as folks we should rebel against and cast off their, their authority in our lives. They should regard their own masters, he says, as worthy of all honor. We'll just let that hang in the air for just a moment. Regard your Whoever it is you sit under the yoke of authority under, regard who it is as worthy of all honor. That is with great dignity and respect, upholding them. When Paul says this, I'm sure he has in mind the kind of behavior that reflects honor, reflects good treatment. What does honor look like? It's the, it's the behavior of obedience. It's the behavior of diligence behavior of respect and esteeming well. It's the behavior of industry and working hard, laboring well. Uh, showing honor means saying, I value you, and I value the way that you lead and the position that you have, and so I want to give dignity to you as you stand over me. Now, this isn't new teaching for Timothy or for the Ephesians at all. Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he gave clear instructions for how slaves and masters were to relate and to interact again. So Paul here is just being very economical in his words because he's already said this. In Ephesians 6, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. There the word is just very flat out. Obey them with fear and trembling, with a, a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So he starts with obedience. Obey your masters. Do what your boss tells you to do, unless it's unethical, unless it's against God's word. And do it with a sincere heart. With sincere heart means that you're really going to feel it out. You're going you're to do it with uh, integrity, not just to externally pass a test or check boxes or, or, or make sure on the outside everything looks good, but with sincerity of heart from the heart, rendering service with a good will. That is working and laboring for the success and flourishing of the person that you are under. And he reframes it. Work in that way, obedience with a sincere heart, rendering service as to Christ. As if, as if your master was Jesus himself. Render honor, render obedience, render sincerity, seek goodwill, 
as if it was Christ himself, as to the Lord, he says, with an eye to the Lord, as if you were a bondservant of Christ himself. Now, let me ask, why is this important? You say, Jeremy, you don't know my boss. He's, I don't know if I would say this is like he's really worthy of respect. He's really worthy of honor. I don't, I don't know. If, you might say to me, Jeremy, I don't know if you, I can tell you my boss that she's a person that receive, should receive respect and honor. I should obey. Paul brings this, well, we're back here in 1 Timothy. Paul brings this back to, to us to see here's the why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You Christian name, uh, you bear the name of God. You bear the name of Christ by your profession of faith. And I'm pretty confident that, at least I hope this is an aspiration that I have, I'm pretty confident that your boss knows that you proclaim to be a Christian. Maybe some of you have in your desk or your cubicle little, I don't know, kitschy sayings of Christianity somewhere here or there. Maybe your screensaver is, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whatever it is. And they look in your life and they see this person at least affirms a Christian faith, and so they're watching it. And they're saying, the way that you treat me as your boss, the way that, that you work under me and serve me and serve this company, that reflects the God that you say you worship. And if you treat your superior with dishonor, you disrespect them, you disobey them, you shame them, you're bringing reproach on the name of God himself. Furthermore, he says, you're giving the gospel a bad name. I mean, who wants to be a part of this if it doesn't change your life? Who who wants to be a part of the good news that that we proclaim that Jesus came and lived and died and was raised again to life again for us and for our salvation to forgive us and to make us holy and new people if they don't see a life of holiness and newness in Christ? The way that you work, especially under non-Christian employers, says something to them about God. It's about a testimony, the mission, the witness that we have in the world. Hearts that are insubordinate and stubborn Arrogant, especially towards those who hold authority over us, do not show a heart that loves God and embraces his gospel. They're watching your life. So you're either upholding the name of God or you're denying it. Uh, Martin Luther, the German pastor and reformer, he says, when a shoemaker, a tailor, or some other craftsman wants to pursue a trade, they have to know the trade so that they can fairly and honestly be called by the name of that trade, a tailor, for instance. If that person could not demonstrate their name in their work, it would be a disgrace. He continues to say, accordingly, we too must establish our name and demonstrate that we are rightly called Christians. If you bear the name Christian, then rightly display it in how you work. When you live under the yoke of your employer and show honor, you show them a God who gives value. You display a life that says, I live for my heavenly Father, and He loves it when I do my best work and honor those I work for. I know, and maybe you're just like, ah, this is tough. Let me help you to think about it in this way. Does the God whom we worship approve of and encourage us on and incite us to be rebellious people? Does the gospel that we proclaim and we say that God transforms our lives, does the gospel we proclaim allow us 
to be disobedient and obstinate towards those in authority over us? Friends, I'm just trying to draw this out and encourage you because perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps you need to repent of your lack of showing honor to your employer. Maybe you've been working half-heartedly. Maybe you've been working begrudgingly. Maybe you've been working like against them. Maybe you're, I don't know, use a cultural phrase these days, quiet quitting just because you don't care about them. Have you been dishonoring and shameful towards those in authority over you? Let this be a moment for us to, to categorize our hearts, to evaluate our hearts towards God as our ultimate authority. Perhaps you need to go back and to confess, repent before your employer, seek to do the good work that they've called you to do, or either find another job if you're willfully employed there. But work out the relationship with them. Do good, faithful, honest work. So Christ calls us in relationship towards those who we serve under. Living under the yoke, particularly towards unbelievers, means that we honor them well so that we uphold the name of God and the gospel itself. Well, let's look at the other category here that Paul speaks about. So he's got non-Christians in verse 1, or just anybody really that we serve under, whether Christian or non-Christian. But in verse 2, he turns the focus towards how do we relate to each other? How do, how do we live under the yoke when we're dealing with somebody who's a believer, who's family, spiritual family? How do we, how do we relate to them? And so this is the second point, that towards Christians, we are to serve better to bless spiritual family. If we sit under the yoke of authority of someone else who's a believer, who, who professes the name of Jesus as we do, who is spiritually family with us, what would we do? How do we relate there? You think, you know, doesn't the cross give us all equal standing? You quoted, Jeremy, you quoted Galatians earlier, there's neither slave nor free. So, I mean, are we all on the same level? I don't really have to obey them because there's no hierarchy anymore. There's no, there's no pyramid scheme here. Like, we're all just, I can do what I want, and they can do what they, they want, and we'll just get along fine. And if I don't like what they want, well, I have the Spirit of God in me too, so I should be able to do what I want. And, and we get this, this tension in our hearts. I think that's mainly because we live as individuals in our minds. We just, our society and our culture has ingrained within us this sense of you are individually autonomous to yourself in every sphere of life. And you, you go along with the stuff that affirms and approves you, but the stuff that you don't like, the stuff that doesn't affirm and approve you, you can just back off from and say, no, that's not for me. I got my own identity and I can reform it out however I like. And this has seeped into the church as well. We think of ourselves only as individuals. But here Paul is speaking to the community, the church family. And so you've got believers that are working for one another. In this context, you have households where there's a master who's a Christian and there's a slave who's a Christian. How do they relate to one another? And he's speaking here particularly to the slaves. He's saying, hey, go and throw off your chains and rebel and, and beat down those masters. And no, he's saying, I want you to see how you're to relate as family together. This is what he says, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So he actually steps into the family language all the more. He says, no, 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 you don't get to throw off chains and be rebellious and hate your master and be violent against them because you're family together. You are brothers with one another. Rather, he says, they must serve all the better. And here's why since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
Teach and urge these things. Takes us back into the family. He says, if you work for a Christian employer, this is how we're going to apply it here. If you work for a Christian employer, if you have authority over your life that is a believer, you've got family that's watching out for you. You've got family that you sit under. The person that you work for and work under is your brother or sister in Christ. And so the command is, serve them all the better. Like really care well for your family. Care deeply for your spiritual family. Excel all the more. Be more faithful. Be more industrious. Be more effective. Be more obedient. Be more diligent. Being under the authority of a Christian employer should give you all the more reason to do your best work. And this is why. Because you're benefiting by your labor, by your work, by your submission to their authority, you're benefiting the household of God. You're benefiting another believer well. Those who benefit by your good service are believers, Paul says. So they're in the same faith as you, and they're beloved. God's affection is on them as it is on you. And your affection should be for them as well. Your work is encouraging and supporting and blessing the household of God. These people that you're working for, they're not just image bearers, as we all are, but they're the objects of God's redemption. They're the objects of His love just as much as you. The mercy and grace of God is upon them. When you serve well these believing authorities in your life, you seek their benefit and welfare and good, and you are partners with them in their benefits. Think of it this way. If you have an employee, or if you have, a, if you have an employer, someone who's an authority over you who's a believer, when their business is successful, the things that Christians value and uphold, those things are successfully valued and upheld as well. If your Christian boss makes a significant profit because you did good work and worked heartily and well unto the Lord, then your boss has the means to be more generous, do well, bless many others, just as you would want to. Again, Martin Luther gives us some perspective on this. He says, the prince should think, the ruler, the person who has authority, Christ has served me and made everything to follow him. Therefore, I should also serve my neighbor, protect him and everything that belongs to him. And the same is true, he says, for the shoemaker or the tailor or the scribe or the reader, whatever Christian vocation is. If that person is a Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. And when a Christian does not serve the other, God is not present. That is not Christian living. So, so when we work for Christians who are believers, and we work well for them, we're not just seeing our lives enhanced, but we're seeing the gospel advance as well. We're, we're locking arms, we're, we're working together for the good of humanity and for the good and the spread of the gospel together. We're seeking to see flourishing. We're working to see goodness expand and grow. And, and as Paul applies it, we're looking to see the benefit of our family. Do you, do you want to see your family thrive and succeed? You want to see your family do well? Absolutely, I would hope. So if you have a believing leader, someone you sit under the yoke of, don't be disrespectful. Don't be lazy. Don't be a poor laborer, but serve all the better. You might say, well, you know what? I don't really like this talk about serving and living under authority or being a servant or a slave. 
You, you might say, my boss is horrible. He's a jerk. He treats everybody terribly. It's like the devil. He's not worthy of honor. You might look at your, your job right now, and your vocation, and say, it's like, what are we doing? We're making widgets. It's boring. It's meaningless. Like, it has no real impact in the world and in eternity. I want to just help you turn your eyes to Jesus this morning and consider the gospel. I mean, look at Jesus for just a moment. Look at Jesus who came for people that are horrible and jerks. Look at Jesus who came for people who treat everybody else terribly. He came for you. And look at Jesus who came to a world that squandered every good blessing and who made life boring and meaningless by our sin and our rebellion against him. And how did Jesus come? He didn't come and be like, oh my word, all these terrible, just wipe it all out and let's start over again. Forget them. No, look at the posture that Jesus came to us with. Look at his heart. He came as a servant. He said to everyone who wants to be great, but whoever would be great among you, you must be the servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. He, he came and he took the humble posture and place of a slave himself. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, held, to be held onto with a tight fist, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and lived as a slave and was obedient to his father, even to the point of his own death, laying down his life on our behalf. I mean, Jesus embodies these points for us. He showed honor to rebellious and wicked creatures, you and me by taking and putting on flesh and blood and serving and bringing about good news. He upheld the name of his Father, and he died so that everyone who believes in him is adopted into his family, and we have God as our Father. Jesus served better to bless his brothers and sisters by dying in our place so that every blessing in the heavenly places is ours in him. Friends, we lack nothing because of his service and giving himself for our good. Jesus lived and shows us the way of living under the yoke. And he says to everyone under the yoke of slavery to sin, under the yoke of slavery in this world, under the yoke of power and uh, dominion over us, he says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, trust me, believe in me and take my yoke upon you and let that be the yoke that leads you through this life so you can live well under the yoke of others. The life of Christ will exude from us 
and be displayed beautifully. Friends, this morning, do you have an authority problem? Look, look to Jesus. If you don't know Christ, I would invite you. He, he calls to all of you to, to repent and to turn from your sin and to come to him in faith, to, to cry out and say, Lord, save me, rescue me, because he's already done it and done the work for you. Come to Jesus and let him transform your heart and your life. Take his yoke upon you. It's easy and it's light. As followers of Jesus, let's embody and live out the way that Jesus calls us to live for the sake of his name and for the goodness of his gospel that he may be loved and worshiped in all the world. Let's come to Jesus and follow him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.